following sermon was delivered at the 1030 worship service at the United Methodist Church of Kent. Please enjoy. The sermon this morning is a continuation of a sermon series entitled Living in the Vine based upon Jesus' teaching where he said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Today's sermon deals with some of the spiritual change that occurs when we are connected to the vine. Let's be for a moment in the spirit of prayer. And the words of my mouth and meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. There are many people in our world today who think very highly of themselves. You see it around the globe. In Turkey today, there are runoff presidential elections where opposition parties are struggling, probably without success, to unseat President Erdogan, who has long cultivated an image of himself as an unshakable strongman. In Russia, Vladimir Putin wants to make himself the next czar. In America, there are people who flaunt their wealth, and in politics, there are people who think that humility is a liability rather than an asset. But all this is nothing new. The scripture that we heard this morning from 2 Kings is about a man who was very rich, very powerful, and who thought very highly of himself. His name was Naaman. He was the top general in the army of Aram, or what we now call Syria. Naaman's story can speak profoundly to our own time because it is ultimately a story of connection to God and spiritual rebirth. As commander-in-chief of the armies of Syria, Naaman had won victory after victory, and Syria had become the dominant power in the region. Naaman was now highly honored by the Syrian king. He was feared by his opponents, and he stood at the pinnacle of the most powerful army in that region of the world. He was, as the Bible put it, a great man and a mighty warrior. Or, as we might put it today, he was a big shot. But Naaman had a serious problem. He was afflicted with leprosy, a disease for which there was no treatment and no cure. But then an Israelite girl who had been taken captive by the Syrians on one of their raids and who now served as a maid to Naaman's wife suggested that there was a prophet in Israel who could cure the leprosy. That maiden is another example of a biblical theme that we considered a couple weeks ago that God works powerfully through ordinary people. A slave girl in this case would play a decisive role in changing Naaman's life. Naaman consulted with his king and prepared to journey to Israel. Our passage says that Naaman proceeded to load up a pile of money with which he apparently intended to purchase a cure. He heaped up 10 talents of silver, 3,000 shekels of gold, and 10 festal garments. Suffice it to say that this would be the equivalent of millions of dollars today. And we must not imagine that Naaman would have just trotted off with all this money in a wagon behind him. A potentate of his stature would have had an entire retinue, a whole caravan with him, both for protection and also to afford him the kind of glorious accompaniment on his journey 
and luxurious travel gear that would have befitted a man in his position. The Bible refers at a couple points to the impressive company that was traveling with him. So Naaman, the biggest of the big shots in his day, set out with a parade of attendants and guards and his own private Fort Knox to go to the land of Israel. He went first to Samaria, the capital city of the northern kingdom of Israel. You can be sure that King Jehoram of Israel, who could not hold a candle to Naaman when it came to either power or wealth, was nervous when Naaman came strolling through his gates. Naaman had a letter presented to King Jehoram. The letter was from the king of Syria, and it read, I have sent Naaman to you in order that you might cure him of his leprosy. Jehoram was beside himself. As the scripture says, when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to give death or life that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Just look and see how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me. Jehoram thought that this must be some sort of provocation, that the Syrians were wanting to pick a fight. But then he was reminded that there was a prophet in Israel. So Jehoram told Naaman that he would find his answer if he went to the great prophet who was in the nearby town of Dothan, the prophet Elisha. Naaman, the scripture says, went with his horses and chariots. Imagine the scene. As Naaman journeys towards Dothan, he makes an impressive appearance. He's got his horses and his chariots, his wagons, his guards with flashing swords and spears, his attendants in fine array, and he himself at the center of it all. As he travels down the road, he sees peasants by the roadside gawking at his splendid retinue with eyes wide and mouths agape. He is the great Naaman on his way to see the great prophet. And I have to think that Naaman imagined in his mind what was going to happen. The prophet would surely be impressed that Naaman had come to see him. Naaman would be received with honor, and then the prophet would set about with the healing. Of course, Naaman expected to pay. Naaman did not need any handouts. He was loaded and could buy whatever he wanted. Perhaps the prophet would instruct him to pay for the building of a great statue to the God of the land in exchange for a healing, and of course Naaman could do that. Then surely Naaman imagined the prophet would call down divine healing in a great public spectacle. It would be a grand thing. Naaman performs a great work, then is the recipient of a grand healing to the astonishment and wonder of the world. Naaman finally arrived at the house of Elisha, but the prophet was nowhere to be seen. Instead, a servant of the prophet came trundling out of the house, and the servant said to Naaman, the prophet says, go wash in the Jordan. Go wash in the Jordan? That's it? That's all the attention the great Naaman is going to get? The prophet himself does not even appear? but sends out this servant to tell him to go wash in some crummy little creek out back? Naaman was incensed. He said, are not the Abana and Farpar, 
the major rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not have washed in them? He was about to storm off in a rage, but his servants, having a greater wisdom, prevailed upon him. They said, Father, they knew enough to give him some title. If the prophet had asked you to do something difficult, would you not have done it? So why not wash and be clean? The prophet Elisha had perceived that Naaman actually suffered from two illnesses. Naaman had the physical sickness of leprosy, but he was also burdened yet more with a spiritual sickness, the sickness of pride. When we talk about the spiritual problem or sin of pride, we are not talking about feeling good about yourself. It is perfectly right to feel good about yourself. Indeed, if we know ourselves to be children of God, we will feel very good about ourselves. We will know that we are loved by God, that we have special gifts and talents from God, and that we are of infinite worth in God's sight. It is also perfectly right to feel proud of loved ones in our lives for all that they are able to do by God's grace. It is perfectly right to feel proud about organizations of which we are a part. We rightfully feel proud of this church for all that this community of faith is able to do. But the pride that afflicted Naaman was quite different from such cases of feeling positive about someone or something. The sin of pride, the first of the seven deadly sins, means putting one's own ego at the center of things. It is the pride of deciding that we are the ones in charge, we are calling the shots, and we are the ones to whom glory is due. Pride, such as we see in Naaman, means lifting oneself to the summit instead of God. It has been said that pride means turning the telescope around the wrong way. It magnifies the self and makes the heavens small. Elisha knew that as long as Naaman was ruled by the sin of pride, he could not be open to the blessing of God. In the passage from James that we heard earlier, James was encouraging his readers to set their hearts upon God, and he quoted a verse in the book of Proverbs that says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humility is essential in order to receive God's working because humility is the recognition of how we really stand in this world and how we really stand before God. Humility does not mean thinking poorly about ourselves or degrading ourselves. It is to recognize rather that we are small and that we are in need of the help and the power of God. To be humble is to turn the telescope around the right way, to see that we are tiny, but God is great. It is in humility that we become receptive to what God can do in our lives. Elisha thus knew that what Naaman needed was a major spiritual shift. He needed to come to humility. And this is why Elisha sent out a servant to basically say to Naaman, go soak your head. Naaman needed a jolt to bring him out of his pride, to move him to recognize his absolute need for God. At first, Naaman reacted like many people do when they feel that they are being slighted, 
He bristled with resentment and was about to stomp off. But Naaman's servants were true friends who helped him to perceive things clearly. Naaman had long played the game of puffing himself up in this world, but deep down, he knew the real situation. He was sick, he was weak, he was desperately in need of a power beyond himself. So he waded into the Jordan. When people today think of the Jordan, they often think of an impressive, mighty river. But when people visit the Jordan, as our Bible Lands tour group will be doing in a couple of weeks, they are typically surprised at how small it is. It was somewhat bigger in Bible days than it is today because a good deal of water today is drawn off for irrigation and other purposes. But even so, in ancient times, the only time when the Jordan had any real quantity of water in it was in the spring, when it was expanded with the flood of spring rains. Most of the time, it was a modest stream, moving slowly, not at all impressive. Also, it is muddy. For Naaman, there was nothing grand about standing in the murky water of the Jordan. As he stood there in that river, his feet sinking into the mud, it became perfectly evident to him that all of his worldly greatness counted for nothing. He recognized that he was just a regular human being who was deeply in need of God. He plunged himself into the water seven times, a kind of baptism. As he did so, he put off his old grandeur and pridefulness, and he opened himself up to God. God met him with grace and power, and Naaman was healed. He was healed both of his leprosy and his pride. Naaman knew now that God is great. As he said, now I know there is no God in all the world except the God of Israel. And he committed himself to worship God for the rest of his days. He expressed that commitment in what may seem to us to be a curious fashion. He loaded up a bunch of dirt to take back with him to his homeland. Like most people of his day, Naaman had the idea that the god of any area was tied to the land. The gods of Syria were connected to Syria, the gods of Egypt were connected to Egypt, and so forth. So in order for him to worship the Lord, the God of Israel, in Syria, he felt he needed to take some of the land of Israel with him. Then Naaman went on to bring up a related matter. Although he had just promised to worship only the Lord, he said, when my master enters the temple of Ramon uh, to bow down and, and he is leaning on my arm and I have to bow there also, when I bow down in the temple of Ramon, may the Lord forgive your service for this. Naaman knew that as a part of his official duties, he would have to accompany the Syrian king from time to time into the temple of the top god of the Syrian pantheon, Ramon. Naaman would be expected to bow down. Naaman knew that the Israelites worshiped only one god, 
and were never to bow down before another god. Indeed, their Ten Commandments said, you shall have no other gods, you shall not make for yourselves any graven images, and you shall not bow down before them. Naaman wanted a kind of advance pardon for fudging on this one whenever he was in the Syrian temple. What would Elisha say to this? Elisha was a rigorous prophet, insistent on right belief, right worship, and right behavior. And here was this Naaman, who now believed in God, but whose religious ideas were quite flawed. He thought he needed as much dirt as two mules could carry in order to worship the Lord, and he intended to keep engaging in pagan religious rituals. You might, expect Naam, you might expect Elisha to blast Naaman for erroneous thinking and errant practice. But Elisha said, go in peace. This is a wonderful picture of grace. Elisha accepted Naaman in spite of his imperfect spirituality. This is a theme I discuss in depth in my recent book, Other Sheep Not of This Fold, that God in grace will forgive, love, and bless people even when their religious ideas and behaviors are flawed. And that's good news for us because some of our religious ideas and some of our behaviors may be flawed but we do not have to be spiritually perfect in order to find acceptance with God. This is what God declares to the whole world in Jesus Christ, that when we come before God and we are like Naaman, weak, confused, sinful, as we turn to the Lord, we experience in the Lord wondrous grace. Elisha also is a picture of how we now are called to relate to others. We regularly encounter people whose spiritual ideas and behaviors may strike us as a bit off, and they may think that we are a bit off. We each rightfully pursue true belief and practice, as Elisha did, but we can accept and love other people for who they are right now. Currently, we are in the concluding weeks of Disciple Bible study. We have some basic principles that we follow in Disciple, and one of those is this. No one has a monopoly on understanding God's word. We must assume everyone has Christian integrity and not accuse one another, no matter how unusual are the opinions of being unchristian. Naaman and some people we know may at times have some unusual opinions. Elisha's response was a word of peace. In our world of tension and division, we need more of the spirit of Elisha. One other element is worth noting in the picture of where this whole story took place. Some years ago, I preached a sermon about the story of Naaman that I entitled, Miracles in the Muck. The healing of Naaman 
is considered to be one of the most notable miracles in the entire Old Testament. Indeed, Jesus referred to this miracle at the start of his public ministry when he was teaching in the synagogue at Nazareth. But this extraordinary miracle transpired in the most ordinary of places, while Naaman was standing in the muck of a very average river. Right here is a major biblical theme. God is constantly working miracles in the muck. The birth of Jesus happened in a barn. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost happened in an ordinary room. Today, human life is often messy and mundane, but the Spirit of God moves with power within the fabric of ordinary life. We do not need to have everything perfect. We need only be receptive to God. The central themes in the story of Naaman find expression in the story of Pentecost. On Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came with power, not on the great and mighty in Jerusalem, but on an obscure band of Jesus' disciples. They were moved by the Spirit to reach out in God's grace overcoming barriers to proclaim God's love to people of all different backgrounds. Like them and like Naaman, we are invited to look to God in humility, recognizing our own imperfection and our need, but recognizing even more the mercy and redeeming love of God. We can experience then for ourselves what Jesus said, those who humble themselves will be exalted. And with the letter of James finally said, humble yourselves before the Lord and God will exalt you. Let us pray. O oh Lord, we stand before you as persons who are very imperfect, but we thank you that you reach to us with wondrous grace. Through Jesus Christ, you pour out forgiveness upon us. Through your Holy Spirit, you fill us with your power today, power to truly be your people, to grow in your grace and your transforming love. Move us, O Lord, to come to you in humility and in faith that we may receive today how you would touch our lives. We might be guided by you to be instruments of your grace and peace in our world. We thank you, Lord, that as you work in us, you draw us together in the life of your church so that together we may truly grow in faith and reach out in mission to the whole world. We pray for those in our fellowship who are in times of particular need. We pray for Alice Hurd, Kathy Smith, and Carl Shearhorn, praying for your healing power. We thank you for our larger church family in the United Methodist Church and Lift up this morning our fellow United Methodists at the Redeemer North Hill United Methodist Church. We pray, Lord, you would indeed guide us to reach out into a troubled world as people who know your love for each person and as people who then can reach out with that good news and grace for all. Inspire us, Lord, as we today would respond in faith as we share in the movement of your spirit among us now and as we lift to you always the praise. In the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, we pray. Amen. 
Thank you for listening to this edition of the United Methodist Church of Kent Sermon Podcast. For more information about the church, visit www.kentmethodist.org.